Hello and welcome to Whispers in the Darkness, the podcast channel for the Out There Paranormal Group. My name is Nigel and I'm the lead investigator with the Out There Group. On this episode, I have a bit of a story to tell you all. But before we get into that, I just want to bring you up to date with what the group has been up to just recently. Following a chance visit by Juliet to a local site for an impromptu investigation with some friends, we found ourselves on the 31st of July in the middle of nowhere in South Norfolk, on what remains of Station 142, an old United States Army Air Force base at Deepham Green. What was to follow was a very intense investigation that required a second visit to the site for Juliet to try and pass some spirits over. If you want to see what transpired on the night, then pop over to our website at www.outtheregroup.net or visit our YouTube channel. We've just recently added a new video to our channel. Entitled Station 142, it covers exactly what happened on our investigation there. And believe you me, it's well worth a watch. As a result of our experiences at Deepham Green, we've decided to run a series of episodes entitled Ghost Airfields. We have quite a few of these in Norfolk and across the border in Suffolk too, and they are slowly just fading away. We think it's important to visit these sites and to see what echoes of the past still remain there while we have a chance. We've got our eyes on a couple of these sites and we'll let you know exactly how it goes. On the next podcast episode, we hope to have myself and Juliet talking about just how easy it is for your eyes and ears to play tricks on you. So give our channel a follow to catch that episode. And now I've got you in the following mood. Why not hit all of our social media channels? We are very active on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. And you can find links to all of these on our website too. So go on, go over, give us a follow. You may even enjoy what we have on offer. So, without much further ado, here's tonight's sorry towel. How not to run an investigation. I really hope you enjoy it. Tonight, we have a sorry tale of opportunities missed. Not just missed, but completely ruined. It goes back to the very early days of my investigating career. Before the advent of Out There Paranormal, I was a member of another paranormal group. This group was given a golden chance to visit a site that had never been investigated before. And well, let me just say, it's an investigation that I wish I could forget. But every so often, it comes back to haunt me. I've decided to share the gruesome experience with you all. Take it as a salutary lesson in how not to conduct an investigation. I'm fortunate enough to live quite close to the Norfolk coast eight miles down the road from the seaside town of Great Yarmouth. Not the most exciting of places to visit, and often the butt of some awful jokes. It has a feeling of being a once glorious resort that has been left to just rot away. However, beneath its faded seaside glory hides a once very prosperous medieval town. Hard to believe at one stage in the 14th century, Yarmouth was the fifth richest town in England. Its wealth built on its herring fisheries and wool exports, in part because of its fisheries, but also because Yarmouth was at the time an important maritime base. In 1261, the town was granted right of muirage by Henry III to fund the construction of a defensive wall. 
This task took an amazing 111 years to complete, and to this day, Yarmouth has some of the most complete medieval walls in the whole of England. Hidden amongst the more modern jumble of buildings, you can find 11 of the original 16 towers, and a few large sections of wall, some of which even include the original battlements. Walls, of course, keep your attackers out, but walls can also give you a false sense of security. And in 1349, the good folk of Yarmouth were to discover just what could happen when death comes knocking and you lock your gates and hide behind your walls to keep you safe. In the June of 1348, a ship came into Malcolm Regis Harbour in Devon. Its hold was filled with fine goods from the province of Gascony in southwest France. On board the ship was another more deadly cargo that would bring death in a most horrible fashion across Britain. The bacterium Yersinia pestis had hitched a ride on the ship. Carried by fleas and rats, it passed itself onto one of the crewmen, and from this single sailor, it transferred from ship to shore and began its deadly journey. The first major city to be hit was Bristol, rampaging across the land by autumn it had reached London. The full effect of the disease hit the capital early in 1349. By March, it was spread across the south. Another front was opened when a ship carrying the disease came into port in Hull. What was later to become known as the Black Death, a virulent form of the bubonic plague, now ravaged both north and south. Nowhere was safe. Through the summer months of May, June, July and August, the plague took its toll. The death count spiralled. Entire villages were wiped out, never to rise again. Over on the east coast, the citizens of Yarmouth decided that self-isolation was their best chance. And they shut the gates of the town and stopped ships coming in. But it was too late. The Black Death was already inside the walls and began to take its toll. Yarmouth was laid out in a series of narrow streets called Rows. An account from Hecker in his Epidemics of the Middle Ages describes things perfectly. The inhabitants of Yarmouth, closely packed in ill-ventilated houses, standing thickly in the rows, undrained and unscavenged, fell easy victims. They died in one year, 1349, more than 7,000 persons, which so reduced the number of inhabitants that the living could scarcely bury the dead. Numerous houses stood in all parts of the town, like tombs, empty or filled with corpses. They remained desolate for years. It took two centuries to replenish the population. So many people living in close proximity to each other provided the perfect breeding ground for the plague. And in these fetid rows, death stalked the people. The bodies piled up, and by the end of the pandemic, two-thirds of the town's population had succumbed to the illness. How strangely topical to be talking about an ancient pandemic in the midst of our current coronavirus crisis. But it's all oddly relevant to this tale. So let's fast forward to 1970. Down on Friars Lane in Yarmouth, workmen have just started to clear a site for the new fire station. Norman English is operating a mechanical digger. 
He scoops up some earth to reveal a skull complete with a lower jaw. The workmen carry on digging and more bones are unearthed. A decision is made to call in the police, who visit the site and decide there's nothing suspicious going on. They call the borough coroner in and he asks a doctor to examine the bones to decide whether an inquest is required. The site sits close to the old town wall. You can tell by the name of the road, Friars Lane, that it was well known locally as the site of an ancient priory. Yarmouth, in fact, had no fewer than five monastic sites, this site itself being the largest of the five. It belonged to the Dominican Order, more commonly known as the Black Friars. Founded in the 1270s, it took up most of the land between Friars Lane and the town wall. It was dissolved in 1534 during the Reformation, standing empty for a number of years, the locals pillaging the site for building materials. The remains of the buildings were finally demolished in 1600 to make way for Drury House. With no foul play being suspected, Great Yarmouth Archaeological Society were called in to undertake a dig of the site. Fifteen skeletons were found buried in the haphazard manner, thrown into graves with lime mortar and planks over the bodies. Most of the bodies showed evidence of being buried at the same time, without the usual care and attention shown to monastic burials of this time period. When experts examined the skeletons, it was determined that they were all male skeletons. Ages ranged from 13 to 30. The bones showed no outward signs of disease, but the manner of the burials themselves and the fact that these graves were within the Friary precincts led to the conclusion that these poor souls were possibly Dominican monks, all victims of the Black Death. A conclusion later verified by analysing the teeth of the skeletons, as plague DNA traces were found in the dental pulp of their teeth. Further digging at the site revealed a large stone coffin, complete with an intact skeleton, carefully buried with some dignity, a stark contrast to the skeletons thrown into the other graves. The dig also turned up the remains of a medieval undercroft and an almost complete gargoyle. The skeletons were cleared away and the fire station was duly constructed and in 1972 it was ready for action. From the word go, the firefighters got a lot more than they bargained for and within a fortnight of the station opening, the spooky stories started. Fireman Jimmy Jones was the first person to encounter something strange. Just after midnight he was sitting in the dormitory which just happened to be directly over the old gravesite. He heard the sound of whistling. The noise got louder and louder, like someone was walking down the corridor, and then stopped right outside the dormitory. He described it as a slow, tuneless whistle, almost like a dirge. He got up to see who was there, and found the corridor completely deserted. The next person to experience something was Fireman Jack Wells. He was also alone in the dormitory when he heard what sounded like footsteps coming along the same corridor. He said it was a very quick step, like someone half running and half walking. The steps stopped outside the door, but no one came in. So he opened the door to see who was there, only to find the corridor completely empty. 
He remarked that it was not the sort of thing you imagined. There was someone or something definitely walking along that corridor. The ghostly encounters continued to happen, with various firefighters reporting strange phenomena, including full-body apparitions, whispering voices, singing and mysterious cold spots. It's now 2010. The ghostly goings-on at the fire station are back, and they've got to the point where they're becoming a nuisance. So one of the watch crews at the station decided to call in a paranormal investigation group to see if they could help explain what was going on and to see if they could do anything about it. It just so happened that the team they decided to contact was exactly the same one that I was a member of at the time. So what now follows is an example of how not to undertake a paranormal investigation. I need to impart the crucial fact that this is not the current group I investigate with. Out there has learnt a lot over the many years we have been together. Yes, in the early days you made a few errors, but nothing on the same quite epic scale as this one. So, exactly why am I sharing this fiasco? Well, I feel it's important to share this sort of thing so other inexperienced groups don't fall into the same trap as we did. Opportunities like this venue don't come up very often. An amazing chance to run an investigation at a very active site where no other group had investigated before. So let's just dive headfirst into this tale of woe and get it over and done with as quickly as possible. Of course, no one is going to turn down this sort of opportunity, and the group jumped at the chance. Well, the team leader did, as she was the one contacted by the watch officer, and a preliminary visit was arranged for the team to wrecky the station to find out exactly what was going on. A visit of this sort is something that most groups like to do, as it's important to find out what was being experienced and locate where the phenomena hotspots are. Then you can concentrate on these areas and organise your investigation strategy accordingly. For example, draw up a plan for the best places to deploy equipment like cameras and sensors, arrange what sessions or experiments to run, and to brief the rest of the team on these actions. With the site so full of history, you would think that the investigation would be meticulously planned, with every minute factor taken into account, to give the group the best chance to capture as much evidence as possible, thus enabling us to be able to explain to our clients what we felt was going on there. Oh no, how wrong you would be. I think you know exactly where this is going. The preliminary visit was duly undertaken. I think two of the group members went the team leader and one of the other investigators. But I'm not able to tell you for sure because nothing was shared with the rest of the team. I did ask the other members of the group if they could remember who went, but they were as much in the dark as I am. We were told the group had a really exciting investigation lined up. They couldn't say too much about it as it was top secret. Quite why it had to be so secret at that time, I was not entirely certain. 
I was to discover later on that it was not common practice for the fire service to allow paranormal groups into stations to undertake investigations and that they did not want us going around boasting about it. I was only informed of the venue a few days before the event, which enabled me to do a small amount of research. You can imagine how excited I was. A venue with some interesting phenomena bad enough to scare firefighters, who generally don't get scared by very much. It got even better when I stumbled across the information about the skeletons found during the fire station build and my overactive imagination went into overdrive. I could see it now. A night full of ghostly monks, disembodied voices and mysterious footsteps. As you can imagine, I couldn't wait to go and investigate. We've been given orders to congregate round the team leader's house so we can all arrive at the venue together. Expectations are running quite high and there's a lot of joviality, mostly about hunky firefighters. We're all quite nervous, just a bit excited too, and lots of banter going on as we sort stuff out. It starts to get a little more tense. A comment is made towards one of the female investigators about her wearing too much makeup, something along the lines of, we're going there to investigate, not to try and pick up firemen. Possibly meant to be humorous, but unfortunately this is not so well received. It only makes the atmosphere feel even more tense. I'll sit and wait for an investigation plan to be discussed so you have some idea of how we intend to operate when we get there. Guess what? I think you might already know. Nothing of any consequence was put forwards. A lot of excitement, a lot of can't wait to investigate but not an awful lot of forward planning. This will come back to bite us later on. With our investigating kit all packed up, we clamber into our various cars to make the short journey to our venue for the night. We are greeted by the watch officer who had invited the group to investigate. We arrange to unpack all of our various kit from the vehicles and once this is done, the watch officer offers a guided tour so we can get our bearings. We have limited access to the station as it's active and they have crews on standby awaiting calls. This will prove quite significant later on. We are all taken upstairs and then the fun begins. We have a number of psychics with us on this investigation, three to be precise. As we are being taken round, they are sensing and tuning in to see what they can pick up. All fairly standard practice on our investigations. The idea being that we can locate potential spots to conduct various sessions to gather any evidence. The walk around ends. Various spots were highlighted by the watch officer for strange experiences that had happened, and I had carefully noted where these were, as it's important to know where we could concentrate on placing pieces of equipment, cameras etc, and what sessions we could run there. Now we really should begin. But there's a few things to bear in mind here. Time is getting on. We have nothing set up and with no plan in place it's not an auspicious start, which is unfortunately soon to be compounded further by the next turn of events. Have we talked about psychics yet? Now, don't get me wrong here, I have nothing against psychics. We have two very good psychics in the out there group and I thoroughly enjoy working with them. But psychics, you see, they have this tendency to go off in any random direction, especially if they have sensed something. It's like herding cats sometimes. I think you know where this is going. Because that's exactly what they did. As I mentioned previously, there were three psychics present that fateful evening. Two ladies, one gentleman. 
One of them, I can't be certain, but I think it was a gentleman in a somewhat excited state, informs us that he's picked up on a spirit. It's a male spirit. He can clearly see him. The spirit has a top hat on and is carrying a cane. Unfortunately, it's not Fred Astaire, because at least that would have been quite interesting. He's angry and he's striding away. Something has upset him. He's saying stuff, but I can't hear what he's saying. And, and we need to go after him. A snap decision is required. And the team leader says, we've got to chase him. And that's exactly what all six of us do. Now, bear in mind, there's no equipment set up, no camera to record it, no voice recorders ready in case something is heard. Someone just happens to be clutching a K2 meter. Never a good sign, as in these early days, we didn't understand quite how flaky these gadgets can be. And this is the sole bit of kit that the entire group has ready. Now, I don't want to join the chase. I think it's a lot more important to have some of our kits set up. So I mention this fact and I'm told if that's what I want to do, then I should do it. I ask if some of the others can join me. Oh no, everyone has to stay and hunt down Fred Astaire. Apparently it's important that the psychics contact him again so they can ask him questions to try and find out who he is. Perhaps they could ask him what it's like to dance with Ginger Rogers. Okay, I'm being a trifle flippant now, but on the night I was really, really annoyed. This was just getting ridiculous. I proceed to unpack the CCTV system that we have ready for the night and lay out the cameras and cables. Eventually I'm joined by two other team members who managed to get the system up and running. The great Fred Astaire was still running around like some lunatic Benny Hill chase sequence. I can hear that tune playing now. They finally have him cornered and you can hear them asking him questions. Who are you? What are you doing here? And the excitement mounts as the lights on the K2 meter keep flashing. Bear in mind, we're in an active fire station that has lots of electronic equipment laying about and I'm pretty damn certain that nobody had turned off their mobile phones. No one, it seems has thought to ask why there should be a top-hatted gentleman with a cane lurking around in a 1970s fire station. Later on, I was to discover that the psychics had been chatting and somewhere a story had gone round there used to be an undertaker's on the site. This story turns out to be completely untrue, but unfortunately the seed is sown. It's enough for their imaginations to run riot and Fred is the unfortunate end result of this. Things finally settle down and we're joined by some of the crew on duty who take great delight in watching the CCTV system whilst being told all about orbs and the such. Yes, I know, I feel your pain too, but we're inexperienced and guided by the TV shows at the time. Nothing has been done to even attempt any experiments or calling out sessions apart from, of course, chasing Fred Astaire. And yes, I know that I should have spoken up and I still kick myself that I did not do so at the time. It's blatantly apparent that no one else seems to know what we're looking for. I dare to mention monks, and I get looked at in utter surprise. What's he talking about monks? It appears that I'm the only one who just happened to do a little bit of research and know the stories about the skeletons that they found whilst building the fire station. Finally, we start to wander about and run a few calling out sessions. Most one of the team keeps an eye on the CCTV system with a couple of firemen to keep her company. We don't get much evidence. Time is running out. We've wasted a good amount of the evening already. And so far, it's not been the most organized or exciting of investigations. Events suddenly take a more interesting turn. An invitation is extended for us to pop downstairs to grab a cuppa. 
So far we've only had access to the upstairs offices, so it's a chance to have a look at where all the exciting fire engine stuff takes place. We take a seat and are joined by some other firemen who appear to have been working out in a gym. Needless to say, some of the ladies were a little overcome, hunky firemen in shorts and vests. I say, madam, calm down there. I was feeling just a little inferior not being that hunky, but rather more chunky. But as it turns out, these two firemen had some very interesting stories to tell. It appears, whilst we were conducting a psychic wild goose chase upstairs, running after Fred Astaire with his top hat and cane, sitting quietly downstairs was a goldmine of personal encounters from firemen. Let's be honest here, spend a lot of their working time facing some real dangers and are not going to be scared by an awful lot. But upon telling their tales to us, we could see that they were really frightened by what they had experienced. Now I'm not entirely certain why we had not spoken to them already, nor why this had not been mentioned to the original team members who did the recce. But I was not going to let this opportunity pass, so I asked them to tell us what they had experienced. And what was to follow was exactly what I was looking for. The very stories that I'd imagined before coming here that night. So, let's begin with the stories we all want to hear. The first story went a little like this. The firefighter in question was working a night shift. It had gone quiet, so we took the chance to have a lie down. So we headed down to the dormitory. He was not entirely certain how long he'd been asleep, but he woke with a start to see a figure leaning over his bed. All he could make out was a robe with some kind of belt. The figure's face was obscured by a hood. He reliably informed us that he was scared shitless, and he got up pretty damn quick and got out of there. The second firefighter's story was along similar lines. He was also in the dormitory, just about to lay down for a rest, when he saw a figure cross the room from one side to the other and just go straight through the wall. Once again, hard to make out the details, but it was wearing what looked like a dress. Both firefighters said the experiences were ever so real. I did ask them whether or not it's because they'd been asleep and then suddenly woken up, and they said no. They distinctly saw those figures. Now you can just imagine how excited I was by this time. Two ghostly visitors sounded just like monks, and my research prior to the investigation had mentioned monks. Could this be what they were? We continued chatting to the two firefighters. They had spoken about their experiences with some of the other firemen there, and the more tales of ghostly figures, footsteps, and the feeling of being watched, all in or around the dormitory area, which just happened to be above, where all the skeletons were found. It's just the perfect sort of thing you'd want to find whilst out on an investigation. Stories that match the research that you had beforehand. The dormitory is above the graves. The two firefighters sought what they thought were monks. I desperately wanted to run some sessions down there, but all of this was in the main area of the station and we would be getting in the way of the crew on shift. Completely gutted, I went back to watching dust on the monitors and not an awful lot more, until finally we decided to call it a night, packed away our kit and left. Driving home, I spoke to the team members in the car with me. We all came to the same conclusion, that this was completely wasted opportunity. And this, dear listeners, is why I'm sharing this tale of woe with you all. Because I want to save you all from throwing away a really good chance to conduct a proper investigation at a very active venue. 
as you can see, it's very, very easy to do just that. The consequences of messing up on an investigation, of course, being that word gets around that you're just a little bit crap, and that could jeopardise your chances of picking up more investigations. Forward planning for investigations is so important. Knowing the active areas, understanding the activity taking place, planning your deployment of equipment and understanding exactly what sessions or experiments you want to run. We missed a golden opportunity to investigate a very active site and then a process made ourselves look, well, to be brutally honest, like a bunch of amateurs. Fortunately for us, because it was a bit hush-hush to start with, word did not get out just what disaster of an evening it was for us. And that, ladies and gentlemen, concludes my rather sorry towel for this evening. Thank you all so much for taking the time to listen to my podcast. And until next time, may your investigations all go to plan and your evidence be compelling. Good night.